From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. In an essay for our stablemate, Australian Foreign Affairs, Penny Wong has written about the way in which coronavirus is breaking down global systems. She also warns that the virus could exacerbate trends towards nationalism and xenophobia. Today, Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs, Penny Wong, on the pandemic and the end of orthodoxy. Penny, let's start by talking about China's response to the virus. How did domestic politics, in particular rising feelings of nationalism, affect their initial reaction? It's very important, I think, to recognise the circumstances and context in which the pandemic arrived. So we already, prior to COVID-19, had seen rising nationalism in many countries, but here, most relevantly, China, also the United States. No force can shake the status of our great motherland or stop the Chinese people and nation from marching forward. And we are seeing in the early stages of the pandemic and in the discussion about the pandemic being rolled out, I think China exhibiting that in its statements. Therefore, I have been personally directing and deploying the epidemic prevention and containment work this time. I believe that as long So, for example, I think that we saw early in the stages of the outbreak a lack of transparency from China. The top leadership were aware of the potential severity of the virus weeks before the public were told of those dangers. We saw a campaign on their success in the handling of the outbreak. All along, we have acted with openness, transparency, and with responsibility. We have provided information to the WHO. and the relevant We saw statements from China which discredited Western countries' responses. I thought the most egregious of these was the Chinese embassy in Paris publishing a story which criticised French health workers and fabricated racist attacks by French lawmakers against the WHO Director-General. Obviously, that, that was disinformation, that was incorrect, but it also is an example of, I think, a, a nationalist objective and painting a particular story, which was unfortunate. Mm. And what about early claims that were made by the US about the virus? Well, we've also seen uh, claims made by the United States, by some members of uh, the Trump administration, uh, about the origins of the virus. For example, I think there was a Wuhan lab theory. Have you seen anything at this point that gives you a high degree of confidence that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the origin of this virus? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. And I think that the world... Uh, which was subsequently publicly discredited by uh, United States intelligence and security agencies. Uh, the director of national intelligence today put out a statement saying that they believe it was naturally occurring, it was not man-made. But who is that? Who is that? That's the office of the director of national yeah, intelligence. Yeah, but who in particular? Who was the man-made? Unfortunately, the virus and the response to it particularly in the early stages, but still continuing, uh, has been one of the topics of the competition between the US and China. China has matched with its own tough words, and it's put forth its own theory, also unsubstantiated. We think Americans came to the Wuhan seafood market in October when there were military sports games being held in the city. The theory that the US started the virus is mainstream in China. Even see. 
So you've had a competing narrative about which country has handled it best, language or suggestions which are not correct as part of that competition. Recently, some politicians in the United States have linked the new coronavirus to China, which is a stigmatization of China. We're strongly indignant and firmly opposed to it. All at a time where we really need the great powers and all of the world to work together to try and confront the worst pandemic humanity has seen in a hundred years. That's a great sadness of this time, I think. And how much has nationalism framed Australia's response so far? You write in your essay about anti-Chinese sentiment being used for domestic electoral purposes. And I wonder, you know, is that something that you see happening in relation to this pandemic? I think we have to be very careful about this. I think it's very important to recognise the features of the more strident Chinese nationalism that we see, the features of President Xi's China, which is a much more assertive China, a China which uh, will project interests and values which are different from Australia's. And, you know, we are in a much more difficult and complex time in our relationship with China and we're going to have more disagreements. But it's very important that we do that sensibly and soberly. We do that uh, in a way that demonstrates a strategy over politics. And I, I think there is a potential risk, which we've seen particularly from some coalition backbenchers, that talking tough on China can be part of a domestic political tactic. I don't think domestic escalation of anti-Chinese rhetoric is actually in our interests. We, we have a very challenging relationship to manage. We have a whole range of interests that we have to deal with with China, which range from our interests in democracy and our values, our sovereignty, but also real people, our, our jobs, our exporters, uh, our farmers, who obviously need a productive economic relationship with China. Ultimately, the US is and remains the world's largest economy, the world's greatest superpower, but neither China nor the US can, can fully contain nor exclude the other. For the rest of us, what we do want is what I've described as a settling point, and others have described it as that, as between the US and China, which recognises that fact and that enables a degree of cooperation uh, and ultimately coexistence. At this stage, that isn't something that seems to be part of the discussion uh, between the US and China. Mm-hmm. You write that we we must learn the lessons of the 1930s, that we've seen what happens when nationalism takes hold. How serious are you about that? How real is that threat? Well, I hope it's not a, a threat that becomes real. I hope I hope hope it's a threat, not a threat that becomes reality, I should say. I always think it's useful to look back to the 1930s. There was a very good essay by Jonathan Friedland uh, that I quoted a couple of years ago uh, when he said we, we should never forget the lessons of the 1930s and those lessons should never be forgotten by humanity. And if I may say, I noticed that Mr Morrison talked about the 1930s too in his speech recently in relation to defence. Ladies and gentlemen, the strategic challenges of today and tomorrow call Australia in many ways as we've been called before at difficult times. And he talked about strategic and economic instability and uncertainty. 2020 has demonstrated once again the multiple challenges and radical uncertainty we face eerily haunted by similar times 
many years ago in the 1930s. And, you know, the 1930s were a time when this occurred. Our defence forces will need to be prepared for any future, no matter how unlikely, and hopefully not needed, in the worst of circumstances. But that's only part of the story. I think the great lesson of the 1930s is what happens when nationalism is allowed to flourish. It is true that you know, economic and strategic instability marked that decade, but the great lesson is what happens when you allow nationalism with its consequent xenophobia and prejudice and authoritarianism to take hold. We'll be back in a moment. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Penny, you write in your essay that this pandemic could trigger the end of the the rules-based system that we've known since the end of World War II. Do you think that Australia appreciates the the gravity of this moment? I hope so, because I think it is a, a grave moment. I think this is a moment where many of the orthodoxies and assumptions that we've relied on for the for past decades can no longer be relied on. We've lived through, uh, as a nation, a, a relatively stable period in human history. So the period post the World War II settlement, the international rules-based order, the underwriting of it by the United States has been, in, you know, in terms of human history, a relatively stable, relatively peaceful and prosperous time for humanity. Now what we are seeing is a pandemic which is unravelling what a world order, a multilateral system, which was already fraying. Obviously, it was already fraying as a consequence of the United States' view about its place in the world, as a consequence of the actions of President Trump. I want to talk about this bombshell report revealing the Trump administration actually has drafted new legislation to essentially walk away from the World Trade Organization, the WTO. Axios obtained... In particular, his actions towards the World Trade Organization. Because we know that they have been screwing us for years and it's not going to happen any longer. They get it. They get it. So they're giving us victories. They're giving us victories. The World Health Organization and other UN bodies. Today I'm instructing my administration to halt funding of the World Health Organization while a review is conducted. And we need to recognize as a nation that as a substantial power, as a middle power, we need a multilateral system that works. We need rules uh, which ameliorate power. Uh, we need a mechanism for resolving disputes. 
we need pathways for cooperation, whether it's in relation to this pandemic or other pandemics which we know are on the horizon, and amongst those is climate change. These all require global cooperation, which requires an international system that works. Mm. And how does nationalism interact with the withdrawal of countries from these key global institutions, you know, the collapse of multilateralism? Well, let's, let's take an example. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every So city. one of the ways in which President Trump and his administration has justified their withdrawal from some of the UN entities that I've described has been because of their version of uh, nationalism. From this day forward, it's going to be only... Which is America first. First. America first. Uh, And the consequence of that, where you have countries saying, well, I'm just in it for me, uh, is that you potentially get to both a place of greater competition, uh, you get to a place where cooperation is unable to be engaged in, and you potentially get to a a beggar-thy-neighbour approach. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies and destroying our jobs. The fact is we are stronger in the face of these common threats such as COVID-19 or climate change. We are stronger together. And an effective response is one where we work together. For example, if fiscal stimulus uh, were coordinated, that would mean you get more bang for your buck. If the economic responses uh, to the global economic crisis we face were coordinated, that would mean fewer people in poverty. These are the the real and everyday consequences of the inability of the current international system to respond cooperatively and collectively uh, to this pandemic. How much is the coronavirus a training exercise, if you like, for how we might deal (laughs) with or be forced to deal with climate change? Well, I think it's, I I think I wouldn't use the phrase training exercise, but, uh, you know, it is teaching us uh, about our vulnerabilities. It is teaching us about risk. It is teaching us about common enemies. Uh, And we, we have to learn both in response to this pandemic, but also for the benefit of humanity longer term, how we better deal with these collective threats and this collective experience. Mm. And you were Minister for Climate Change. What do you make of our current approach? Well, Australia doesn't have a climate change policy. Australia's internal, though, and global critics on climate change willingly overlook or perhaps ignore our achievements as the facts simply don't fit the narrative they wish to project about our contribution. Uh, And the fact that we don't have anything credible in terms of domestic policy has a number of consequences. It has a consequence in terms of energy costs for consumers. It has a consequence in terms of uh, a lack of investment in our energy sector, which has a broader economic impact in terms of cost and reliability. Australia is doing our bit on climate change and we reject any suggestion to the contrary. By 2020... It has an impact on our capacity to engage 
internationally in an effective way. It undermines our credibility in the Pacific uh, and in Southeast Asia. I mean, we hear Pacific leaders saying climate change is an existential threat. It is the national number one national security threat. President Jokowi came to Canberra and in his speech to Parliament spoke about climate change, but we have nothing uh, that we are able to say that has any credibility about what we are prepared to do domestically or as part of the international community to deal with this threat. Penny, thank you so much for your time today. Good to speak with you. Penny Wong's essay appears in Australian Foreign Affairs, a sibling publication to The Monthly and The Saturday Paper. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Elsewhere in the news, Victoria has recorded its biggest spike in daily COVID cases since the pandemic began. On Monday, Premier Dan Andrews announced another 532 new cases and said high-risk industries, such as abattoirs, could be shut down if outbreaks continue to emerge. But Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton said modelling pointed to Monday's record number of new cases, potentially marking the peak of the crisis. And the New South Wales Chief Health Officer Kerry Chant has declared that the state is facing a critical time as 17 new cases emerged yesterday. Chant said that while most cases have been linked to known clusters, community transmission was continuing. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.